Hello and welcome to the Monash Perioperative Medicine podcast series. My name is Jonathan Nicholson and today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Justin Burke. Justin is a staff specialist anaesthetist here at the Alfred Hospital and head of pre-admission clinic. Welcome Justin. Thank you. So today we're going to be talking about SGLT2 inhibitors. These are medications that patients take for diabetes, particularly type 2 diabetes, and have been in the press in recent months, um, particularly challenging anaesthetists and perioptive physicians to uh, how we get patients through safely the perioptive period who take these uh, medications. So just to start off, Justin, can you just give us an outline of how these drugs work um, and if we're likely to see many patients taking these medications? So as the name suggests, Johnny, these are uh, sodium glucose co-transporter inhibitors. And uh, these, uh, these are mediators of glucose transport throughout the body. And there's, there's two types that are well known. Uh, there's a type one that's present in the gut, skeletal muscle and heart, and they assist glucose uptake into cells. And then there's the type two, the SGLT2 mediators, and they are responsible for uh, reuptake of glucose in the tubules of the kidney. So uh, these particular medications, the SGLT2 inhibitors, inhibit uh, that reuptake of glucose into the plasma. Mm -hmm. uh, and so basically what you have is uh, glucose spilling over into the urine and that drops the plasma glucose. Right. The answer to the second part of your question is yes, I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of the SGL2 inhibitors. Uh, firstly, because they are quite effective at reducing the plasma glucose, mm -hmm. and long-term effect is a drop in HbA1c of between a half and one percent. So they're effective uh, medications for diabetes and reducing diabetic complications. The second thing is they can be added to any existing regimen, and to be honest, overall their safety profile is pretty good. Mm -hmm. uh, they've got a very low risk of hypoglycemia, um, but obviously it's the side effects associated with uh, diabetic ketoacidosis that is, is what everyone's worried about. Okay, so in addition to um, the effects you mentioned, what, are there anything special about these SGLT2 inhibitors um, that differentiate them from um, other diabetic medications that make them more beneficial to patients? What sparked interest in them is uh, the findings of two major trials, one in 2015 and 2017, showing that in fact they might have significantly positive effects on cardiovascular and renal outcomes. So um, one of these studies showed a reduction in heart failure admissions mm -hmm. um, by over 30%, and another showed a reduction in diabetic-related nephropathy with um, less albuminuria and less reductions in GFR. So that prompted the uh, major um, diabetic societies to recommend these drugs as second line treatments for all type two diabetic patients who uh, have a cardiovascular risk profile. Right, so this um, what they call euglycemic ketoacidosis uh, is the concern that uh, people have been worried about for patients who take these medications. Um, why does this happen? And what's the sort of path pathophysiology behind it? Look, some of it is still unclear, but in its most basic form, when you increase your urinary glucose excretion, you reduce the available carbohydrate uh, for energy production by about 30 to 40%. Mm -hmm. And that also explains why most patients who go on these uh, drugs also reduce weight. Um, when you do reduce the uh, plasma glucose, you also reduce uh, insulin response. And 
what that tends to do is uh, shift the liver over to fatty acid oxidation mm -hmm. and the production of ketones. Now, not all individuals are prone to getting this diabetic ketoacidosis, um, but those who have uh, less insulin production, so type 2 diabetics with less insulin production, that might be that they have an autoimmune type or just that they've got um, you know, a higher HbA1c, mm -hmm. those are the types of patients that are prone to fall into this diabetic ketoacidotic state. Now the reason it's euglycemic is because unlike normal diabetics, type 1 diabetics, we expect the glucose to rise. In these patients you've still got the urine spilling over, the right. glucose spilling over into the urine, yep. so the gl glucose can be moderately elevated or normal. Okay, so uh, I think many of us are aware that our college Janska uh, released recommendations about how we should manage these in the perioperative period. Can you uh, just briefly give us an outline of what that was stated in those guidelines and also uh, whether it covered off uh, the situations for major operations and for sort of day case procedures? The ANSCA guidelines uh are based on the best evidence at the time. Mm -hmm. And it's, I think it's important to remember that we're just, we're just learning about these drugs. They've been on the market now for uh, three or four years, but the perioperative implications are only just beginning to be understood. So the ANSCA guideline was uh, firstly to be aware that the perioperative period is kind of the perfect storm for euglycemic ketoacidosis, that patients um, have reduced carbohydrate intake from fasting, yeah. they're dehydrated either from fasting or from bowel prep, they've got a stress response um, in, the, in the perioperative period. So um, it's obviously a risky time and even though it's rare, they can have significant um, consequences. So their recommendation was to cease the um, the medications for three doses prior to surgery and it's not entirely uh, clear whether that's all surgery or major surgery. Yep. Uh, so they recommend withholding for two days and then the day of surgery okay. as well. Um, they suggest strongly considering postponing non-urgent surgery if there's an elevated blood ketone level, mm -hmm. so greater than 0.6, um, or if there's uh, other indications of uh, insulin insufficiency such as an elevated HbA1c of, of 9% or above. Um, they also recommend routine checking of blood glucose and ketones in the post-operative period, especially if the patient uh, becomes unwell or mm -hmm. if they're unable to um, reintroduce oral intake. Right. Overall, I think they're good guidelines, but the question, as you hinted to, uh, is what do we do for minor day case mm. procedures and how does that compare to what we do for major procedures? Uh, here at the Alfred, we've kind of taken a... Um, an approach that with the endocrinologist that for major surgery will withhold for the three doses as recommended. Yep. Uh, and impor the important thing to note there is withholding them post-operatively as well. So for major surgery, we're changing our guideline to withhold for three days post-operatively as well until full oral intake, dietary intakes recommenced. For minor day case surgery, we, uh, we've been uh, recommending withholding it for a day now, um, that can lead to some problems, and the issues have mainly been surrounding uh, colonoscopies, yep. where patients have had prolonged fasting and had bowel preparation and presented quite dehydrated. So we're going to add them to the major surgery group and recommend withholding for three doses for right. colonoscopies also. Okay. Well, and I guess the <clears throat> follow-up to that is, uh, in, in an ideal world, that patients will follow the instructions and those instructions are passed on clearly. but. 
quite often I imagine that there may be patients turning up, particularly for colonoscopy, who've had the bowel prep and just haven't stopped their SGLT2 inhibitor. So in that circumstance, what should we be doing? Should we be cancelling the patient? Should we be uh, monitoring and assessing them or, and, and clinically as well as looking at their glucose and ketones? Um, and what should we do with them after the procedure if we do go ahead? I think uh, the factors to consider are firstly the urgency of the surgery. Mm -hmm. So if the surgery is um, urgent, we have to consider what the indication of the surgery is, whether it's cancer surgery or some other uh, urgent surgery. And then consider the contributing or um, predisposing factors in the patients. So have they presented dehydrated? Have they had bowel preparation? What's the extent of the surgery and what's the likely stress response going to be? And how soon do you think they'll resume normal eating and drinking? So I think they're all the factors to consider. Um, I think for uh, colonoscopies, it does seem to be a special case. And I think um, if a patient hasn't withheld uh, SGL2 inhibitors for a colonoscopy, you're in a bit of a bind because the patient's had bowel preparation, mm. you don't want to cancel them, yeah. uh, but at the same time, um, they're certainly at risk. So my advice there would be to follow the ANSP guidelines and take uh, ketone. Uh, if it's more than 0.6, um, I'd uh, certainly uh, rehydrate the patient and do a venous blood gas mm -hmm. to look for signs of acidemia. Uh, a negative base excess of more than sort of minus five and a low bicarbonate. And if there's evidence on that of um, ketoacidosis, then I think it would be um, prudent to rehydrate the patient and uh, treat with insulin and carbohydrate in the form of glucose. Now, whether you proceed with the procedure or not on that occasion really depends on, again, the urgency of the surgery. I think if you do proceed, I think it's really imperative that you continue to monitor them mm. with the treatment post-op. And I think they should all, all patients who present for a colonoscopy having had their SGL2s should probably be kept overnight. Uh, there's been a question about whether that should be in an HGU environment. And I don't necessarily think that's the case. As long as the ketone, the blood ketones and the glucose are monitored at least eight hourly. So you, you alluded to the, the sort of the treatment plan would be to give insulin along with some sugar. Um, is that the, if the ketones are high, is that the treatment for a patient uh, who has this glycemic ketoacidosis? And um, if we don't you do that, what's the, what's the danger? What's the, what's the risk that we run with these patients um, if it goes unrecognized? So the treatment is similar to normal hyperglycemic DKA mm -hmm. um, with perhaps a little bit more of an emphasis on replacing the carbohydrates. So uh, intravenous fluid for dehydration is the first step, and then insulin for the relative insulin deficiency. Now, there, there aren't many specific guidelines on this available, and most endocrinologists, when you ask them, will say, contact an endocrinologist, and we'll yep. talk you through it. But it's essentially a, um, a, you know, a low-dose insulin infusion is all that's required with additional carbohydrate, usually in the form of dextrose, um, to correct that insulin glucagon imbalance and basically um, provide some glucose to prevent the ketoacidosis. Now, if it goes unrecognised, and I guess I think it's good to have the conversation about this because I think people are becoming more and more aware of these drugs, but the bigger risk really is the unrecognised patient yeah. who comes in on SGL2, has their surgery, and then develops nausea, vomiting, malaise on the first or second post-operative day, mm. and it's not recognised. Yeah. As far as consequences, the most um, up-to-date data is from the British Journal of Anesthesia, who had a recent 
case series of 42 patients. Yeah. Uh, and of those, uh, eight ended up on mechanical ventilation wow, right. and uh, five um, had acute kidney injury, uh, but all uh, had made a full recovery okay. in that case series. So the indications are that if it's identified and treated, um, that the sequelae should be limited. Okay. And, and so uh, for patients that uh, come in for day case surgery, um, are we safe sending them home? If they continue to take their SGLT2 inhibitor, they've had their uh, colonoscopy, but you're happy that they're eating and drinking in recovery and their ketone uh, has been measured as low, are we safe to send those patients home? I think provided there's no evidence that their carbohydrate intake is going to be limited from then on, yep. I think it's reasonable. Yeah, yeah, good. So. The, the, the next challenge that it presents to us is if we have two or three days or two or three doses preoperative uh, cessation of these drugs, are we likely to see patients arriving on the day of surgery with high blood sugars and, and should we be preparing for that and maybe uh, altering their, their diabetic medication? There's definitely some risk, uh, but probably less risk than, say, stopping uh, metformin or sulfonylurea for two or three days mm -hmm. preoperatively. Um, the bigger issue is probably the combination drugs, actually. So you might be familiar with one of the trade names, Jardiamet, which is a, a combination of an SGL2 inhibitor and metformin. Yeah. And certainly stopping, um, stopping that is likely to see a significant rise in, in blood glucose leading up to the procedure. Uh, some endocrinologists have recommended increasing other diabetic medications. So for example, uh, increasing metformin by approximately 50%. Okay. But I think, again, it, it should be done on a case-by-case case basis, if a patient's on an SGL2 inhibitor that isn't combined with metformin, the likelihood of stopping it for two days is that there might be a mild rise in blood glucose during that period, mm. uh, but it's unlikely to be catastrophic. Mm -hmm. And uh, whereas if a patient's got uh, known brittle diabetes, uh, high HbA1c, and on multiple diabetic agents, then I think getting endocrinology advice about just what to do with the remaining agents would be worthwhile. Yeah. Moving on just to um, a, another group of patients which may present a bit more of a problem is the bariatric patients who often go on diets preoperatively uh, in order to uh, lose weight and also allow the surgery to be performed under better conditions. If these patients are taking SGLT2 inhibitors and the diet predisposes them to becoming ketotic, are these patients at more of a risk of uh, this uh, euglycemic ketoacidosis and should we be stopping it in this patient group preoperatively? I think the answer to this one is, is a bit clearer and I think the answer is yes. We should be stopping SGL2 inhibitors in patients starting on very low calorie diets mm -hmm. such as Optifast preoperatively um, or at the very minimum getting some endocrinology advice about it because the combination of, uh, of starting uh, Optifast which is low limited carbohydrate intake plus the uh, SGL2s there's definitely a tendency towards ketoacidosis in those states and in fact in the British Journal case series uh, 13 of the 42 patients were patients having bariatric surgery mm -hmm. and 10 of those were on preoperative right. optifast. So that combination seems to be particularly troubling. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and just one final point I just wanted to touch on um, is the testing of ketones. And it, you can obviously have the option of doing urinary ketones uh, in common day sort of management of patients in ED. Uh, but this isn't 
the right way to go about. We have to do blood ketones. Is that correct? For yeah, the, the urinary ketones aren't um, accurate enough mm. in this situation um, and blood ketone measurements recommended. Now, nearly all modern glucometers mm. have a, a ketone strip available for them and I'd encourage anyone, especially if you work in a freestanding um, sort of day centre, to, to get those strips. Yep. Uh, the only thing from a nursing point of view, you do need to calibrate the machine in between. So you can't right. do a, a glucose and then a ketone straight away. You do have to recalibrate the machine in between. But the strips aren't expensive and, um, and they certainly give you the precision that you need. There's also, for anyone who's been on a, um, a sort of a paleo or a ketosis type diet, there's also inhaled um, or, ex, you know, ex, exhalational um, oh, yeah. ketone measurers, yep. uh, which report usually in parts per million. And we're not quite sure exactly how that correlates blood ketones in this case. So I'd recommend sticking with the, blood the simple blood ketone yeah. strip. Great. Well, I think that's cleared up quite a lot of uh, the questions um, regarding these medications. No doubt we will see more patients presenting with, uh, with these, uh, on these SGLT2 inhibitors. So thank you very much, Justin, for clarifying all those points. Um, thank you. Bye. Thank you.